welcome to episode 28 of the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Sharon Grewell. Uh, Grewell is an assistant professor of government at the College of William and Mary, a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution, a non-resident fe- and a non-resident senior fellow at the Project of Middle East Democracy. In this episode of the podcast, Grewell joins me from DC to discuss his book, Soldiers of Democracy, Military Legacies and the Arab Spring. Looking at how uh, looking at examples of how the Egyptian and Tunisian militaries behaved in the backdrop of the Arab Spring and respective heads of state being ousted, Grewell argues that how militaries are treated under autocracy shapes how they behave under democracy. Offering an explanation to how different both militaries reacted to the uprisings and the political turbulence that followed. Welcome, Sean. It's great to have you finally on the podcast. Thank you. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's a pleasure to be here today. <laughs> Welcome. So it's a great, uh, elaborate book, and one that I think does contribute to the literature on the Arab Spring and civil-military relations uh, significantly, and I believe one that shines light on how militaries uh, behave. So I'd like to start by asking you about, by asking you to generally break down your core argument, and we can get into details of how it applies to Egypt and Tunisia, respectively, right after. Sure. So generally, the book argues that how the military behaves under democracy is shaped by how it was treated under dictatorship. Uh, And so whether it allows for a transition or it represses the uprising from the start, whether it stages a coup or not, whether it facilitates a president seizing all powers or not, that those decisions under democracy are actually shaped by legacies created under dictatorship. And so the the theory begins by thinking about how dictators deal with their militaries and then traces the legacies out for democracy. So what I argue is that dictators have two dominant strategies for how they control their militaries, because dictators are also very much concerned about, is my military going to kick me out in a coup? And so broadly, the two coup-proofing strategies they can pursue uh, is one, to empower the military, that is, to keep the military happy, to give it whatever it wants, the material resources, the political power that it wants, so that it doesn't see any interest in staging a coup. Uh, It's content where it is. And the other strategy, other than empowering the military, would be to marginalize the military, to relegate it to a meager budget, uh, to little political influence, so that Maybe it has the will to stage a coup, but it no longer has the capacity to do so. It's not strong enough. It doesn't have the connections with civilian elites. Uh, And so those two strategies, empowering or marginalizing the military, I argue, can both be effective coup-proofing strategies for dictators. Uh, And empirically, I show that dictators can survive just as long whichever strategy uh, they choose. But this choice has these legacies downstream, creates these legacies, creates really two different types of militaries downstream. The empowered militaries, the ones that are benefiting from dictatorship, they have interests that might be threatened under democracy. They might see their budgets cut as a newly elected government wants to redistribute that wealth to their constituents. Uh, Their political power might be threatened as civilian elected leaders uh, are empowered as decision makers, no longer military officers. Uh, And so empowered militaries are more likely to thwart democratization. They're more likely to repress mass uprisings uh, and try to defend the dictator. 
And if that fails and there has to be a transition, they're more likely to try to shepherd and constrain that transition uh, and ultimately to terminate the transition if needed. They're more likely to stage coups uh, to try to prevent democratization. By contrast, the other model, where if you marginalize the military, they are more supportive of a transition. They resent the dictator for having marginalized them and neglected them, so they're more likely to abandon them uh, during a mass uprising. And subsequently, they're more likely to keep their hands off of the transition. They have fewer vested interests uh, in the transition, and more importantly, they might even gain from the transition uh, because their budget had been uh, so small, underfunded to what they should have been, uh, their budget is likely to grow during a transition. They're likely to see greater political influence in the form of uh, an advisory role to the president in a National Security Council, for instance. Uh, and so marginalized militaries are likely to gain during a transition to democracy and thus to be more supportive of it. Uh, but although with a marginalized military, democracy is easier, marginalized militaries also come with certain risks. They're less able to uh, defend against a rebel attack, uh, so those countries are more likely to descend into civil war. And these militaries are also more susceptible to incumbent takeovers. When the president is trying to seize all powers, the elected president from within, these militaries are more easily co-opted by that uh, elected president, uh, given that it had been so marginalized historically. Uh, and thus, the choice that the dictator makes, do you empower or do you marginalize the military, creates these legacies, both for the likelihood of democratization, but also uh, the forms by which it breaks down. Coups are much more likely with empowered militaries, but incumbent takeovers and civil wars more likely with marginalized militaries. So that's the core of the argument uh, in a nutshell. And how does that apply to Egypt? So in Egypt, you have the empowered military model, uh, where previous dictators, Gamal Abdel Nasser, Anwar Sadat, Hosni Mubarak, all of them chose this strategy of empowering the military. Uh, in part because of security threats uh, in terms of wars uh, with Israel, but also due to their personal preferences. Uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, if you read some of his writings, uh, wanted a strong military because he believed it was the only uh, force capable of the transformations he sought in society uh, against the British, but also in terms of redistributing wealth, uh, and, and frankly, in terms of their uh, uh, colonial legacies in that uh, Egypt inherited a military already trained from the, uh, the British era, uh, and thus it made it more difficult to cast it aside uh, once Nasser took power in 52. And so for all of those reasons, in Egypt, uh, it went the way of the empowered military route. Uh, and so the military that developed uh, from the 50s onward is one that had tremendous material wealth and political power. Uh, under Mubarak, especially, you see uh, military officers populate all throughout the bureaucracy. Uh, you see uh, not just a large budget, but control over sectors of the economy. Uh, so materially, politically, the military is very well off under Mubarak. And so once the Arab Spring hits and you have mass protests, the military is a bit hesitant about what to do. Uh, it doesn't want a democratic transition. It sees that there are threats to its interests if a trans 
transition were to occur. But on the other hand, it also doesn't want to tarnish its reputation among the Egyptian people and uh, abroad uh, if it were to massacre the protesters. And so it tries to walk this fine line uh, between uh, repressing the protesters out of the limelight, so arresting uh, protest leaders and other protesters uh, on their way to Tahrir Square, uh, even torturing and killing some protesters throughout the 18 days, even after it said it's not going to use force against the Egyptian people still. Uh, it actually was uh, arresting and torturing uh, protesters during this time. And so because it had these interests to preserve, it took this route uh, of repressing the uprising. Ultimately, that did not work. Uh, the protesters continued, uh, and eventually the military realized it had to abandon Mubarak if it wanted to preserve the system in which it was uh, the dominant political force. Uh, and so eventually it decided to abandon Mubarak and run the transition itself, to seize power, uh, to take power in the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces and run the transition itself, trying to constrain uh, what the transition could do and what the elected uh, parliament and then president, what powers they actually had. Uh, and thus, throughout the transition, you had this conflictual bargaining between the elected parliament and president and the military trying to retain its powers. And what I document in the book is that the elected president, Mohamed Morsi, encroached on a number of the military's interests. And this goes against, I think, what many of our perceptions are, what we've heard about the transition, which is that Morsi actually respected all the military's interests, kept appointing them as ministers and governors, uh, granting them economic contracts. What I show in the book instead is that actually Morsi also encroached on a number of the military's interests, uh, made security decisions that the military disagreed with, which highlighted how the military's political influence had decreased. Uh, now they had to, uh, now this civilian actor was making security decisions rather than the military having monopoly over uh, security decisions. In terms of economic contracts, Morsi encroached uh, on uh, the military's uh, economic interests, the Suez Canal Corridor Development Project. Morsi tried to relegate the military to just one partner among many uh, in that uh, major contract. And frankly, in terms of the military's composition, one that had historically uh, been largely secular in the sense of not allowing Muslim Brotherhood or any uh, anyone even with relatives in the Muslim Brotherhood into the military, that ban uh, Morsi tried to lift, uh, and uh, even his nephew joined uh, the military academy uh, that year. And that also led to fears in the military of infiltration. And so all of those encroachments uh, on their political power, on their economic interests, on their composition, led the Egyptian military to say, enough is enough. We don't want this transition anymore. Uh, we're fed up with Morsi, uh, and we uh, instead would want a coup. And so what you see in the spring of 2013 is this concerted attempt to assemble a coup coalition. Uh, protesters, political parties, uh, national institutions to get everyone on board uh, to stage a coup and be able to try to present it as a revolution in order to try to preserve uh, the military's image throughout. Uh, and thus, what amounted in turn 
was this model of an empowered military fighting tooth and nail to try to prevent a transition. Morsi ultimately understood those dynamics. Uh, new democracies know that if they encroach on the military's interests, they risk a coup in return. But the decision they have to make about how quickly do we encroach on the military's interests and on which militaries, uh, which of the military's domains do we encroach on and which do we respect, that balance is very difficult to strike, especially in the midst of a very fast-paced transition. And so ultimately what happened was that Morsi miscalculated uh, his popularity relative to the militaries. He thought that uh, Egyptians would not come out in mass in support of a military coup. He thought incorrectly that the international community would not uh, give a green or yellow light uh, to a coup uh, and ultimately miscalculated the extent to which Sisi was aggrieved himself uh, during the transition. And so all of those miscalculations that Morsi made led him to encroach too far on the military's interests, ultimately leading in turn uh, to the coup. And so in short, uh, what we see in the Egypt, uh, in the case of Egypt, is this model of an empowered military historically making democratization much more difficult. And how does your argument apply to Tunisia that you also handle in the book? So in Tunisia, you see the opposite story, uh, a military that had been marginalized since independence uh, and that in turn facilitated initially the democratic transition. Under dictatorship, under Habib Bourguiba, under Zina Labedin Ben Ali, the military had been neglected, had been sidelined, uh, in part because of the same factors historically. Colonial legacies went in the opposite direction, where there wasn't a military to inherit from the colonial era, and military force wasn't the primary driver of independence. It instead was uh, a more peaceful protest liberation movement. Uh, and so Bourguiba wasn't constrained by having an inherited military. He built it from scratch instead upon independence. And his personal preferences led him to sideline the military instead. And so from the start, uh, Bourguiba neglects the military in terms of budget and salaries uh, and invests instead in counterbalancing forces. He builds up the police. He builds up a National Guard, a paramilitary force that he puts in the Ministry of Interior rather than defense. Uh, and so the military that develops in Tunisia is one that is neglected materially and politically, but can't do anything about it because of these counterbalancing forces. Uh, makes it more difficult, therefore, to stage a coup. The other strategy that both Bourguiba and Ben Ali pursue is to try to discriminate in promotions within the military uh, so as to privilege their in-group to the top ranks of the military. The secular coastal elite from the Sahel, where Bourguiba and Ben Ali were both from, those coastal elite officers uh, monopolize the top ranks of the military under dictatorship, even though the rest of the military is much more diverse and inclusive uh, of the country. And so those two strategies, uh, this marginalization, this discrimination in promotions, those help Bourguiba and Ben Ali stay in power and prevent a military coup against them. 
But both strategies led the majority of the military to resent democracy, to resent that discrimination in promotions and to resent uh, their marginalization uh, materially and politically. And so when the Arab Spring hit in Tunisia, the military took the opposite approach, uh, had no interest in standing with Ben Ali, uh, didn't actually say no to any order to fire. Ben Ali never gave Rashid Amman an order to fire, and so Rashid Amman never had to say no. Uh, but the officers on the ground, uh, the soldiers on the ground looked the other way, uh, defended protesters in some cases even uh, from the police, uh, rather than trying to defend Ben Ali uh, in those final days. And accordingly, the revolution succeeded and the transition was allowed to proceed without the military stepping in. There wasn't any attempt in Tunisia to try to constrain and run the transition themselves. The military didn't have those interests that it needed to preserve. And on the contrary, the Tunisian military gained from the transition. They saw their budget increase more quickly than any other ministry. Uh, they saw political influence uh, as a military advisor to the president for the first time, uh, as representatives in the National Security Council regularly, uh, giving them more political influence than they had under dictatorship. And so they gained from the transition. And not only was the marginalization reversed, but the discrimination in promotions was also reversed. Uh, president Monsif Mazuki, in particular, made a concerted effort to try to have affirmative action within the military to remove some of these elite coastal officers and instead bring in officers from the neglected interior regions of Tunisia and appoint them uh, instead uh, into the top ranks. And so with those coup-proofing strategies reversed, uh, strategies that had bred resentment within the military, now they were reversed under democracy which led them to have some goodwill towards the Troika government uh, in 2013. And so when in 2013, you saw these similar calls as in Egypt, mass protests against the Anahda-led government calling for a repeat of the Egyptian scenario in Tunisia, explicit calls for a coup, even I find in the book, uh, some explicit meetings with top officers asking for a coup, uh, the military refused, didn't want to stage a coup because they were gaining from the transition. Uh, they didn't have any interest in going back to the old ways and going back to uh, a Ben Ali-style dictatorship where they had been marginalized. And so they ignored the calls for a coup, and thus Tunisia was able to make it to democracy. It was able to survive those volatile transitional years. Uh, it was able, therefore, to find consensus on the Constitution, to win the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, and so on. Uh, and so what you see in Tunisia is the opposite model, a military that had been marginalized, and that creates these legacies that in turn leads the military to allow for a democratic transition and allow it to survive in those very volatile early years. Yeah. And how do you explain Qaisaid's successful incumbent takeover in securing, you know, Tunisia's, Tunisia's military kind of supported this incumbent takeover in July 25th, 2021? So how do you explain that? Yeah. So the marginalized military, that model is helpful for democratization. It makes democratization easier. But it also comes with these risks of their own, uh, an increased likelihood of civil war, but in this case, an increased likelihood of an incumbent takeover. 
when the military had been so marginalized, it is relatively easier for the elected leaders to co-opt them, uh, to advance their interests materially and politically, whether that is to co-opt them into the new democratic system, as the Troika government did, or it is to co-opt them into a takeover of their own, like President Kais Syed has done. Uh, so on July 25th, 2021, when Kais Syed uh, closed the doors of the parliament using the military, uh, the military obeyed those orders, uh, thinking that Kais Syed was going to advance their interests even further. Uh, already in the two years Kais Syed has been president, he had advanced the interests of the military. Their budget kept increasing despite COVID, when you might think the budget would go to the Ministry of Health. Instead, uh, Kais Syed uh, tasks the military with the COVID-19 response. Um, likewise, in terms of political influence, you see the military, uh, members of the military appointed as ministers of health to deal with COVID. Um, and later on, more recently appointed as Minister of Agriculture, now that food security has also become a national security issue. So politically, materially, the military has been gaining under Kais Syed, which is one reason why they've gone along with his incumbent takeover. But then there are also two other dynamics that also explain why marginalized militaries uh, come with higher risks of incumbent takeovers. The second is thinking about their composition. Uh, as I noted earlier, Burgiba Ben Ali had privileged their in-group, the coastal elite officers, to the top ranks, but the rest of the military had been their outgroups, had been had coming from the interior regions of the country, uh, not the elite in the country, because uh, the elite didn't really have much interest in joining a marginalized military with uh, low salaries and, and no political influence. And so the military came to be stacked, in essence, with outsiders, uh, outsiders who likewise bought into Kais Syed's rhetoric uh, that we need a complete change in the system. We need these radical reforms to the system to clean up uh, the corrupt system. Uh, and likewise, therefore, their composition led them to be more susceptible uh, to an incumbent takeover by someone like Kais Syed. And the final dynamic is that marginalized militaries, because they're kept so far from politics, come to develop more apolitical professional norms. Because they're not involved in politics regularly, they're socialized into thinking that getting involved in politics is something detrimental to the military, something we should stay far away from. And so when Kais Syed gave them this order on July 25th to close the parliament, their calculation was that when we're put in this difficult situation, it's better to follow orders. That's what we know. Civilian control over the military, respect for the commander in chief, that's what we know. Whereas saying no to the president, according to the military, would have been intervention into politics and we shouldn't touch that. Uh, and so likewise, this professionalism or this um, incomplete professionalism, I would call it, that they developed under dictatorship as a result of being kept far from politics, that also led them to obey on July 25th and think following orders is less political uh, than saying no. And so for all of those reasons, this marginalized military, although it made democratization easier, also increased the risk of an incumbent takeover, which ultimately uh, is what Tunisia succumbed to. And you think it makes uh, uh, 
the likelihood of Tunisia, you know, becoming a democracy again or democratizing again, do you think it affects this likelihood or makes it improbable? At the moment, it makes it difficult because all three of those reasons I just outlined, their corporate interests, their composition, their professionalism, all of them are leading them to continue to support Faisal. He's advancing their interests, now appointing them as Minister of Agriculture, advancing their political and material interests. He has won over their outgroup composition, promising these radical reforms, uh, and uh, they are too professional uh, to try to disobey Kaisayed. Uh, and so for the short term, uh, it's unlikely that this military is going to uh, uh, abandon Kaisayed. That said, this is the still a similar military to the one that had abandoned Ben Ali in 2011. And so if a mass uprising emerges, uh, if, for instance, the economy worsens and people start to blame Kaisayed for it, uh, and a mass uprising spontaneously emerges, this military is unlikely to fire upon the people. They're too professional for that. Uh, their composition is, again, with uh, the masses. Uh, and so they are unlikely uh, in that scenario to repress a mass uprising. That said, uh, the longer Kaisayed stays in power, uh, the more likely he, it is that he shifts the model uh, that Tunisia is on. Uh, if he continues to advance the military's interests, uh, and if he starts to stack the military with his uh, in-group, his supporters, uh, it makes it more likely that uh, Tunisia flips to more of an empowered military model uh, down the road. And so uh, we really need to wait and see uh, to see uh, what happens moving forward. Uh, but in the short term, uh, I think it's likely that the military sticks with Kaisayed short uh, of a mass uprising against him. And did you try to apply your general argument elsewhere besides Egypt and Tunisia? I do. And so I try to see if this sort of model, an empowered military or marginalized military, has these same legacies globally as well, or if this is just a, a you know story specific to Egypt and Tunisia. Uh, and so what I do is I, I collect data uh, across uh, the world on the military's budget. Are they empowered or are they marginalized? Uh, and I trace out what effect that has on democratization elsewhere. And I find similar effects. The more the dictator had spent on the military, the more he had empowered the military, the more likely that military is to defend the dictator during a mass uprising, to indiscriminately repress the mass uprising. And... If the transition, if a revolution somehow succeeds still and a transition occurs, the more likely that military is to uh, stage a coup against that transition. Uh, so you see uh, the story generalized there of empowered militaries making democratization more difficult. By contrast, what you see cross-nationally as well is that the more the dictator had marginalized the military, the less likely they are to repress mass uprisings uh, and the more likely they are to uh, allow for a transition, but still with these risks of an increased risk of civil war and increased risk of incumbent takeover under democracy. How does a civilian president co-opt an empowered military? Are there any lessons to be learned here? Because your book is quite pessimistic when it comes to that. That's the key question, right? How could Egypt eventually make it to democracy despite this empowered military? And what I find is that 
in most cases, when you have an empowered military, this is the outcome. This difficulty of bargaining with the military, the miscalculations that eventually lead uh, to a coup in the end of democracy. But there are some success stories that eventually make it uh, to democracy, typically through uh, several attempts, uh, through fits and starts, eventually make it to democracy. And the lessons that you learn when you look at what helped in those cases are the following. One is that those hard cases typically made it to democracy after the military had become delegitimized as a political actor. After, for instance, it was defeated in a, in a war, uh, so I'm thinking Argentina after losing the Falklands War, that uh, had delegitimized the military, made people think they shouldn't be so involved in politics if they want to be an effective fighting force, or if they made a mess of the economy while the military was running the show. Uh, if under the military dictatorship, the economy was so poor that once they transition to democracy, nobody wants to go back to how things were. Uh, so those two pathways where the military is delegitimized, either as a result of defeat in war or a poor economy, that uh, can facilitate democratization even when you have these empowered militaries. By contrast, uh, or, or the, the, the cognate is that during the democratic transition, if things are going very well, if the economy is improving, uh, if the economy is growing under the newly elected government, that can also give them a bit of a buffer uh, that can allow them to encroach on the military's interests, uh, but still retain the public support uh, to be able to defeat any sort of coup attempt. It makes it so that the military will have a tougher time staging a coup if it doesn't have the popular support uh, to, to go with it. But there's also perhaps a third path uh, where perhaps among the political parties and the population writ large, uh, even without a growing economy, you often see some dynamic of political learning where political parties realize that this coup trap that we are in, where we have these attempts at democracy that end in a military coup and we try it again, that ultimately it's not good for the country. Uh, I'm thinking here about Turkey, where, which also had an empowered military staged four coups uh, and overturned democracy a number of times. But uh, since the 90s has been able to uh, remain in the barracks, largely, I think, because of this political learning among all the political parties and among the population writ large. Uh, many of the opposition parties had supported previous coups uh, in the 60s, 70s. Um, but starting from the 1980 coup, you see this process of political learning among the Turkish political parties where they realize that the 1980 coup was so devastating to the country and so devastating to the political parties that they don't want to call for military coups moving forward. And so in 2016, when there is this coup attempt against Erdogan, none of the opposition parties come to support the coup. Instead, you see uh, the opposition parties and the Turkish public mobilize against the coup. And so that sort of political learning uh, might be a third channel by which an empowered military can be kept into the barracks when they don't have 
uh, the public support or the support from political parties uh, to intervene once more. But I do need to end on a bit of a pessimistic note as well, which is that even when everything uh, is stacked uh, together, when you have a military delegitimized by uh, war or or a massacre, uh, when the economy is growing and when the public doesn't want a coup, still some militaries calculate that it's in their interest to stage a coup because they have these material and political prerogatives to preserve. I'm thinking here about Sudan or Myanmar recently staging coups despite the majority of the population being against the coup and mobilizing against the coup, still those militaries intervene. And so, yes, there are some success stories where you can get an empowered military to stay in the barracks, um, but it's very difficult. It still makes uh, democratization uh, hard. Uh, and I think Sudan and Myanmar show us that very clearly. Very uh, unfortunate. <laughs> But I'd like thank you for you know taking time to record this episode, and I'll leave a link to the book in the episode's description. And thank you so much for for your time. Wonderful, thank you for having me. This was a pleasure.